Good afternoon and welcome to the studios. We're doing this by Zoom listeners, by the way, and mainly because Christopher is in Santa Barbara and couldn't just come to Moab. Could you? <laughs> it would have been fun, but no, probably not. No, not practical. Well, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Please tell them who you are and maybe a little background on yourself and how you ended up where you were at now. Sure, sure thing. Yeah, so uh, my name is Chris Funk, and uh, I am an affiliated research professor with the University of California, Santa Barbara. And uh, together with my colleagues, I help direct the Climate Hazard Center here. And the Climate Hazard Center is primarily funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development Salmon Early Warning Systems Network. Uh, we also get funding from the NASA Harvest Program and other projects like that. Um, and I should stress that, you know, what I'm saying here on the air today is also my own opinion and not the opinion of the university. That's, this is your, you can do that. This is your platform. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I've been do, working, you know, in a kind of what I call humanitarian earth science activity for more than 20 years. And a lot of that work uh, has been focused on monitoring and predicting droughts in really food insecure areas uh, like southern Madagascar, where there's more than 400,000 people, you know, really on the edge of famine, or Ethiopia, where there's about the same number of people living on the edge of famine. And I work as a uh, climate scientist to try to safeguard those lives. And it's a really awesome thing, and maybe we can uh, return to more discussion of how it offers kind of a model for hope uh, for our planet at the end of this discussion. Um, but I got involved in climate change through the course of that work as uh, I saw rainfall decline, more intense uh, you know, heat extremes, um, stronger climate events like El Nino's and La Nina's, which we can define and discuss later, you know, really uh, hammering the people that, that I was you know, working to protect. And so, you know, around uh, about 2016, when I really, you know, saw the clear links between these uh, droughts and the emerging science of what's called climate attribution, uh, that really made me mad. <laughs> and uh, I was publishing scientific papers on it, but nobody really seemed to, to care much about that. So uh, I decided to write a book about it and try to share um, my understanding of the link between climate extremes and climate change. Uh, tell me a little bit about, tell us all about, but a little bit about your center in Santa Barbara. Yeah. So what we do is really cool. Um, so first of all, about half or maybe a little bit less than half of uh, the people working for us are actually in Africa and Central America. And they're there to, uh, monitor extreme climate in their region and support links between that and the prevention of famine. Also things like doing training at national meteorological agencies, capacity building, um, things like that. And then our purpose here at the university is to produce data sets and weather and climate forecasts that feed it, um, those field scientists. Um, and Kind of as part of that, uh, we kind of go way further than, than we would have to to just support 
those countries and we produce data sets that are used to track droughts uh, and rainfall extremes all over the world. And um, that's a big expertise of mine. And, you know, sort of one of the things that uh, I bring to this book that I've written, Drought, Flood, Fire, How Climate Change Contributes to Catastrophes, is just that, you know, I, I'm a data guy and uh, I can really, you know, speak to a lot of what we're seeing, um, you know, with kind of a lot of integrity and veracity because I have actually just looked at, you know, terabytes of data um, yeah. All right. Um, tell us about your Moab connection, because the reason we kind of lured you in on the line tonight to talk with us is that, A, you've written a book, uh, which you're going to talk <laughs> about, but I understand there was a Moab connection to somehow you writing a book. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm very good friends with uh, Landon Tana Kincaid, uh, and Glenn, I think, is known as Little Okra. You know, we've been friends for, I don't know, I guess, 20 years. And we, you know, both lived up in the uh, uh, mountains behind Santa Barbara in a kind of very fire-prone area. And, uh, you know, this book that I've written is kind of a uncommon and difficult attempt to, to try to make climate change accessible through, through stories and anecdotes and explanations. And, you know, kind of midway through the process, I was really losing faith in myself. Um, but I, you know, shared an early version of the book with Tina and Glenn, and they really gave me uh, a lot of encouragement, even a lot of suggestions and edits. Um, and so really helped me, you know, see it through to the end. Let's, let's talk about your book a little bit. Tell us what it's about. Let me guess, climate. <laughs> it is. It is about climate. And... Uh, Specifically, I mean, it's called Drought, Flood, and Fire. And, you know, it kind of at the, at the core of the book, you know, are, are chapters on heat extreme, extreme precipitation and cyclones, uh, wildfire in the Western United States, wildfire in Australia, um, these things called El Nino and La Nina events, which are big seesaws and sea surface temperatures in the Pacific Ocean. Um, and, and that sort of forms the, I guess, the, the nucleus of the book. And so there's sort of descriptions of how climate change is making all of those different types of hazards more dangerous. Um, but then, you know, at the beginning of the book, there are some chapters that, that really try to describe how the climate of our planet works and kind of give uh, uh, a layperson you know, who's willing to, to do a little bit of work, you know, a good opportunity to understand, you know, some of the really key principles. Hey, Christopher, I'm going to... Really, sorry, you're kind of breaking up a little bit, so... Can I try to call in on a landline? Yeah, that would be fine, because we're going to try and get a better voice line. Christopher's going to call in to the KZMU studio line. Can you hear me now, Christopher? Yes, sir. All right, now we have Christopher back. Can you hear that better, listeners? Of course you can. Let me ask about the forest. I mean, there's... Uh, when you look back into history, the, the indigenous peoples of the Americas kind of had a different concept of forestry in those days. They allowed a lot of fire to happen naturally and, and kept the spread of trees kind of distant. They weren't grown so close together like you find here. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And so, I mean, to be clear, like, I don't want to suggest that uh, air temperatures are the only factor, right? 
And yeah, we're definitely looking at, you know, really a, a lot of monoculture almost in a lot of these forests, right? In, in stands of trees that were all planted at about the same time, whereas like a lot of the Native Americans had very, for example, here in Santa Barbara, you know, where I live, the, the Chumash Indians would, you know, regularly light fires to, to kind of keep a lot of the chaparral down mm-hmm. and creating kind of oaklands. And how about your trans? I hear transmission lines are a bit of an issue too, you know, which kind of exacerbates the fire situations. The actual electrical delivery lines kind of are, you know, it's t- tough to keep, maintain a clear path for them, especially when it's windy, for example. Yeah, but, but you know, so transmission lines, fire management, you know, forest management, you know, these are, these are all concerns. But, you know, they... So right now, you know, the, the, the bootleg fire, right, the campfire, these are like 400,000-acre fires, right? It's just one fire. And, you know, in California, before 2011, the, you know, the fire year for the whole state never reached that level. Wow. And in 2011, we had transmission lines. In 2011, we basically had the same forest that we do now. Mm-hmm. So what's really changed, uh, and, and again, it's not the only factor. Of course, ignition is an issue. More people living in, in the woodlands is an issue. But, you know, the fact that these warmer temperatures have just created these bone-dry forests, mm-hmm. you know, means that when there's a fire, it doesn't, it doesn't cause a fire. And this is just, in general, what we see. You know, climate change doesn't cause disasters, but it can often, you know, intensify them when they occur. So, um, you know, uh, in my book, basically, you can, there's like a direct line. You can go from uh, warmer temperatures to what are called vapor pressure deficits. That's like a, a moisture gap at the, at the Earth's surface to these dead fuel moisture levels. And so um, in one of the chapters of my book, you know, I basically just do the math. It's all just simple algebra, you know, and ask the question, you know, what would fire conditions have looked like or dead fuel moisture conditions looked like in Australia, which had a horrible fire year in 2019, if in a world without climate change. And the story that emerges is that, you know, one degree of warming really makes a, a huge difference. Let me talk about this much discussed um, subject called tipping points where um, our activities or whatever we're doing, we're pushing, pushing, pushing. And at some point, it creates these feedback loops, which are create, you know, intensify everything else. Um, would you, can, can you kind of talk about those a little bit and, you know, wh- how we can potentially address tipping points? I mean, is there, if they're reached this and they pr- go by, is there a point of no return? Well, yeah. I mean, there, there absolutely, you know, is a point of no return. Um, and, and the way that I try to just describe it in my book is, uh, you know, I, I call Earth a, a Dixie Cup planet. And the Dixie Cup, though, is upside down. And, you know, the Earth is like a marble that's sitting on top of that Dixie Cup. And, you know, the Earth has lots of virtuous feedbacks, you know, that when you, you, you give it a shove, it tends to kind of self-regulate itself, just the way that that you and I self-regulate our temperatures in our body, right? But, you know, there's a, a very, very real risk that we reach these tipping points and we start getting 
you know, what scientists call positive feedbacks, which in this case aren't at all good. So, you know, maybe not today, but, uh, you know, yesterday and then probably tomorrow, looking at your window, you're going to see one potential positive feedback, which is that if fires go up, they emit, you know, more smoke and carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. That's a bad positive feedback. You know, another one is that as the oceans warm, you know, they become more acidic, they kill off corals, they kill off um, plankton, and so they may absorb less carbon dioxide. Uh, you know, you see fires right now in Amazonian Basin, right? That both releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, while also reducing the ability of the Amazon to draw down carbon dioxide. Um, you know, and then, and then of course, uh, glaciers, you know, if they go away, then we get a lot more sea level rise, but we also get less light reflected back to space. I did hear an interesting, and you may be able to verify this, but according to the, the most recent studies about the Amazon, they say it is now emitting more carbon than it, than it actually absorbs, which was kind of a uh, interesting, um, like wow moment <laughs> because right, right. I yeah. mean, it's a big forest and if it's emitting, I mean, obviously, I mean, you can directly relate that to human causes because there's no argument that you burn down forests, you're going to, you know, create carbon. And that is a conscious decision by, I guess this is, this is the subject we probably will breach into because I know you're a scientist, but obviously there needs to be some policy changes at a higher level to kind of make sure that um, your science is being heard and that we are reacting to that with good policy. And, you know, that become, that's where everything becomes so complicated, <laughs> does it not? Yeah, well, and so, and so I'm sure there's lots of answers to that conundrum. But, but what I felt was that, you know, as a climate hazard scientist, you know, I have, my specialty is understanding and mapping and monitoring and calculating, <laughs> predicting, you know, hazards that affect regular people. Okay. And, and so, you know, while there's some stuff in the book about clipping, tipping points, you know, there's a lot more stuff about how climate change is impacting people right now today. And I think that that's going to be an important uh, motivator that'll prevent us from hitting the tipping point. Well, what's In other words, if, if you wait till the ice sheets break off, we're, we're doomed. We'll just bring this right into the real world as of today, okay? Today we actually, and you've been in Moab before, today's the first day the LaSalle's have been visible for I don't know how long. Um, I happened to be in Denver the last few days. When I was there, it was reported that Denver has the as one of the top five cities on earth for air, poor air quality. And I can't imagine Salt Lake City is much better. That is caused by what you were talking about, this fire in California, which is completely smoking out the rest of the nation. There's a direct effect. Let's go into another one. There was a forest fire last year in a canyon that is a major transportation thoroughfare called I-70 corridor through Glenwood Springs. They had a fire in there last year. And this, you might explain this, the one-two punches. Here it is. One, punch one, here's a fire. Punch two, here comes a flash flood. That whole highway system and the railroad was closed down for almost a week, which, you know, creates, that had direct effects on lots of people. The smoke we are dealing with has 
effects on everybody that lives downwind of this massive fire that you have. And that's just one of the fires. That, that's right. That's right. And and so and so again, there are, there are aspects of like what causes a flash flood that are very hard to understand. There are aspects of like what causes fire ignition and fire you know movement that are really hard to understand. But the piece that everybody can get is that a drier atmosphere sucks out the vegetation, mm-hmm. making, it making it easier to have a big fire, and uh, a moist atmosphere holds more water, which means that when you get extreme precipitation, it can often be more extreme. And so this is just, it's simple, but it's like we all need to understand that. So, yeah. Let's um, flip the. Let's flip it on its head a little bit. I mean, obviously, there's disturbing news out there. Are there. Is there any hope for us? I mean, are there things that we can do that can save ourselves in a way? I mean, what do you offer us? What would you kind of offer as solutions? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm in the solution business. I mean, you know, and so, you know, there's basically two. You know, you know the, the worm, the term mitigation, if you might have heard, heard it, you know, is often used in two different ways. And so, you know, um, I work in climate and weather extreme damage mitigation, right? Risk reduction, which means that uh, we try to predict things and keep people out of harm's way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so there's a lot that we can do uh, on that front, and you know, I know because you know my community is doing it right. Like right now, we're helping to safeguard you know almost a hundred million extremely food insecure people's lives, and a big part of that's predicting droughts. And we're doing a pretty darn good job at doing that. And but the way that we do that is you have to have what I call an energy convergence perspective on climate change. Um, and, and this is really, really important. There's kind of an old-school view of climate change that just everything is going to sort of warm up slowly and, every, you know, a lot of that, get a little warmer here, and then the frog will boil and we'll be, all be dead in 2050. Okay, that's not what's happening. What happens is that the energy builds up in the ocean and it builds up in the atmosphere and it moves around. And so, you know, if we've gone up by a little bit more than a degree of, of warmth, that warmth, you know, is concentrated in different places in the ocean and atmosphere. So right now, that, that warmth is concentrated, you know, over the Pacific Northwest. It's concentrated over Europe. It's concentrated over Asia. And there's these three big high-pressure cells that are wreaking havoc, you know, in those three regions. And in six months, they may be someplace else. But if we understand and look for those extremes, then we can predict and we can prevent and we can help safeguard ourselves. So understanding how climate change is making things more extreme opens the door to uh, prediction and protection of lives. I guess adaptation in a sense. I mean, we have to adapt yeah. to these changing climates. I did hear an interesting thing. You mentioned this. I mean, I, I hail from the United Kingdom and it's a very temperate climate to be that far north in Europe. And the reason for that is this flow of um, water called the Gulf Stream, 
which allows this warm, you know, tropical air basically to flow in. I also heard just very recently, and I read in a, I, I follow The Guardian, they do have quite good climate news stories, and they mentioned how the Gulf Stream is the weakest it's been in, in, than they've ever, in thousands of years. And one of the effects of that, of course, will, it could plunge Britain into a more northern European climate. So it actually will not heat up Britain. Things will get really cold there. And it's interesting how it's not, you say things change how things happen on certain parts of the world. That's, it's, you know, the, it's not, you know, it doesn't affect everybody the same way, in other words. Yeah, that, that, that's right. That's right. And I think, you know, and I think listeners can understand what's happening now in the Western U.S. is really the opposite of that. So, you know, um, there's a similar kind of Gulf Stream or, or what's called the subtropical gyre that brings up a lot of warm energy in the ocean from off the coast of China. And kind of, you know, winds and waters kind of flow in a clockwise way. And that makes, you know, Oregon and Seattle humid and nice you know, even though they're very far north, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, what we've been seeing is that an amplification of that system. So normally that, that's kind of a, ni- a nice thing. We like getting warm, uh, you know, temperatures in, in, in Seattle, but it's just gone into overdrive, yeah. and uh, that's what's happening in, in, the, in terms of the western United States. But then that's this big high-pressure cell, so on the back side of that high pressure cell, yeah. you have a low, and you can get things like snow in Austin, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, if big freezes in Texas, for example, or yeah, things like exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah. So yeah, and of course, all these you know communities are these freak weather storms. Nobody's prepared for. It. I mean, I heard the, some of the statistics in Canada and in the, in the, in the BC area with the heat dome you were mentioning. They almost had more deaths from heat than they had through COVID, which was a very startling statistic. I mean, it's, it's, it's very sad to hear that, but in that town in Canada that completely got wiped off the face of earth. I mean, people talk about paradise in California, but you know what, you're up north, it was pretty devastating. And, and just so, I mean, yeah, and it was tragic, but also agreed, just so unexpected. I think there were 67 deaths in Vancouver. You know, you don't think about that happening. <laughs> in a place like that, right by the ocean and temperate climate. Um, so, yeah, no, that, that um, those are, you know, both really, you know, tragic outcomes. Um, but to come to pivot back to the positive, you know, if, if we understand that this stuff is, uh, you know, is, is going to happen in, the, in these unexpected places, then we can, you know, try to be prepared for it and you know, try to mitigate the impacts. And at the same time, it's the really effective, I think, uh, motivators to, to do what your radio station is already doing and, and you know, use solar panels and, you know, reduce emissions in all the ways possible. You know, so, you know, seeing the extremes now right in front of us, uh, I think will really push us to have the political will to make the hard choices. It kind of brings, I mean, you're bringing up a very valid point. I mean, I believe that I, um, my business has solar, my home has solar, the radio station here has solar. A lot of the reasons why these installations occurred is because at the highest level of government, and this kind of brings in Michael Mann's argument about what the real, what the real battlefront is, is, you know, 
is you're battling kind of an industry that's very ingrained in what it does. And, you know, any doctor will tell you, you keep smoking, you keep smoking, 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 burning things and putting, you know, smoke into your lungs. It's going to cause health effects. Now, we all know the underlying cause of, you know, the, of the earth is that we're burning a lot of carbon, right? It, I mean, really, that is the main disruptor that we can kind of, all the science is going to, the parts per million, everything else. And that is all related to an industry that is not going to go away anytime soon. And that is almost that, that sort of becomes a bit of a concern. You know what I mean? I mean, as much as we may do think, or California may be great on renewables, but go a few states over and they, you know, Pennsylvania, and they want to burn coal, you know, because that's their industry. So within the U.S., you have all this disparity of things. And how do you unify these people together? So we're all at it. You know what I mean? Try and in the fix. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess part of my, uh, you know, my attempt at unification is is explanation. So, so don't just believe me. <laughs> Let me try to explain to you. Um, and then, and then I think a, another unifier that we're that we're is really kicking in is just the the price tag on these disasters. You know, so you can go to the Noah's billion dollar disaster and add up, you know, the, the effects of all these things, you know, and they're coming out to, you know, like $150 billion a year and year in and year out. And if you go and you look at like global reinsurance databases, you can see this is playing out all over the world. And so, you know, the the economic cost of these extremes, you know, is really getting people's attention. And, um, you know, so I think both the person on the street and the person at Wall Street, you know, is starting to pay attention. I just hope it's soon enough. I guess, you know, I'm sure you know who Michael Mann is. His argument is that the big industries are kind of using the same tactics that, that the tobacco industry used many years ago, okay? They put all the blame on the individual and say, it's up to you, person, and kind of instead of the big government getting involved and actually that's what needs to happen is that we need to see that incentive. Solarification took place because um, certain federal government administrations offered great tax incentives that kind of incentivized all of this production, at least in certain in Utah, that's what I saw. And then you found the states were pushing back against these rules or the administration changed and it went the opposite direction almost. I mean, we can all see that at least in the last 10 to 20 years in our own lives, how that is not exactly helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so here's um, here's what Michael Mann says about this book. He says, Chris Funk's Drought, Flood, and Fire uses a compelling mix of storytelling and fact-finding to communicate the very real impacts we are now feeling from climate change to all the weather extremes. And, and I think that, you know, that uh, is kind of a good summary of what, you know, I mean, there's many ways to try to make this argument, and, but, and, and part of what I try to do in this book is tell stories. You know, the story of the Thomas Fire here in Santa Barbara that I was involved with, the, the story of uh, people devastated in eastern and southern Africa due to droughts, um, uh, the story uh, of my friend's mother who, uh, you know, had her, lost her house um, in, in a California fire and barely made it out, you know, and, and then linking those with the, you know, the science connecting climate change to those events. And, 
you know, um, you know, people, I hope, you know, once the, the moral implications of these extremes kick in, you know, I, I hope that that will change the dialogue as we see that climate change is really hurting people. And because that's a pretty universal thing to want to protect lives. Do you think it humanizes the science a little bit? I mean, that's the real magic of your book is that, you know, the science often goes over a lot of people's heads, you know, and they just, I think they give up, you know, because it seems so complicated. But when you're creating storylines of, you know, how, how, you know, that hurts humans, that kind of makes the science real for a lot of people, don't you think? Yeah, that was, that was what the book tried to do, you know, and, and to connect the dots, you know, between those things. And, and, and it's just, I mean, for me, that's kind of how, that was my motivation for, for writing the book. <laughs> I just saw climate change hurting people, and that made me mad, you know. And, and, um, uh, and but I think, um, yeah, when things get humanized, sometimes that can make, you know, a really big difference. Let me ask you this, because you mentioned all these stories. Do you, do you think you could tell us maybe your favorite, you know, one of the most compelling stories, and maybe just kind of share at least the bones of that you know, with the listeners as a story so we can hear a story from your book in a way? Yeah, okay, so here's, here's a, a story that I think um, is, is both very sad but um, also hopeful. So, uh, you know, so one real motivator for this uh, uh, um, book was this uh, email that I got in 2016 um, when I started doing some blogs about East African droughts. Um, uh, this is from John McGrath, a, a friend of mine at Oxfam. Uh, uh, forward, drought in Somalian land. Hi, Chris. We've just received some disturbing photos plus information on the humanitarian situation thought you ought to know. Uh, and then he forwards this email from James Firebrace, who is uh, driving around in northern Somalia in a Jeep. This is the latest I have picked up from Somaliland. The dire rains have completely failed in the eastern regions of Somaliland. Uh, many of those residing in the area had hardest by the drought, as migrated elsewhere. Uh, People are at a high risk due to shortages of food, water, and shelter from a harsher than usual winter. Even worse are those that did not have the need to move out of the drought-stricken regions because they are much harder to reach. Uh, please do not hesitate to raise awareness about this current situation. And then this comes accompanied with you know, lots of, of pictures of, of really dying or desiccated camels and sheep and goats and emaciated you know, children you know, in line um, for food. And uh, my work um, is really tied droughts in this area to, to climate change. Um, but the, the hopeful part of this is that um, our work on climate change in this region has also been able to predict a lot of these droughts. And so um, we predicted the next drought that was gonna hit that region and, you know, that helped motivate life-saving humanitarian assistance. And so, you know, these are stories that are, that are terribly alarming and, and very concerning and, you know, link climate change to hurting, you know, millions of real people. Um, but there's also some hope there because if we understand how climate change 
is producing these effects, you know, then we can help people, you know, and try to prevent the worst of impacts. For sure. Let me let me bring this really close to home, okay? Because you're probably aware that our region is in exceptional drought. And as you know, <laughs> I mean, you may know this, we know this is happening, but what are you going to do when you have, I think, 40 million Americans downstream Colorado depend on that water supply, which is dwindling? But it seems the numbers of people in these places seems to be ever increasing. How, what do you see um, in your, I mean, this is a climate issue. What, how do you see this panning out, so to speak? Yeah, right. Uh, and maybe even before jump, jumping into that, you know, I think, I think, you know, it's important to to say that that all these sort of scenarios, you know, have uh, you know aspects of kind of like increasing consumption or population growth, right? Vulnerability. There's lots of dimensions to this, and so, you know, just to connect the dots. I mean, the same thing that we're seeing in East Africa, we're seeing in the the Western United States, the Colorado Basin, which is like. You know, more straws in the more, more straws in the in the bottle, right? Um, and you know, I think climate scientists have been worried about the situation in, in, in Colorado River for a long time. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's that's you know, a tough it's, one, isn't it? Because it's yeah, like it's not going to snow anymore. You know, it's 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 one of these. I mean, it's interesting in history. I mean, this mega drought, which is we say, they say we're just basically starting to enter. This is one of the reasons why some of the indigenous peoples got wiped out in this area, I think, was this prolonged drought where their crops failed year after year after year and they eventually ran out of seeds. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, they didn't, obviously their technologies weren't as advanced as ours and we've been able to create this masterpiece of um, what John Wesley Powell said, nobody should live here. You know? and, or if they do live here, they should live in modest-sized populations, not unlike Moab, funnily enough. You know, it's like not like Vegas or Phoenix or even Los Angeles, you know, that, that basin. So it seems as much as you might try and mitigate, when the water runs out, the water runs out. You know, I mean, unless you start salinizing the ocean and that's going to, that's kind of almost unbelievably expensive and creates even more damage to the environment with the energy it takes to do that. Yeah, yeah, I just don't think desalinization, yeah, it's just, it's too energy intensive, you know. Um, but I do think, I mean, you know, I think that if you look at where the water goes, you know, a huge amount of it goes towards agriculture. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my guess is that that's probably where the pinch is going to be felt first. For sure. I don't think people in Denver are going to stop you know, drinking water. Um, the crops uh, might fail that we all well, eat. Or, well, or people, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I just, I'm much more familiar with California, but, you know, we're facing the same problems here. And, you know, as our water supplies dwindle, you know, the the acreage of pecans keeps going up and up and up, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's another, I mean, you, what you grow is also something that might have to adapt, like we may have to give up on almonds, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> to plant that, something else, you know, when you... That's, that's exactly right, Howard. Yeah, exactly, you know, I mean, because it's like this crazy thing where the prices of, of almonds are going up because there's a shortage of water, so they're planting more almonds because the price is going up. <laughs> And it is pretty, 
and for the listeners, I mean, almonds are one of these crops. I mean, if, you, if you're lacking in water and you have a crop that you can plant when you have water, then you plant it. Almonds, if you don't water them, the, plant, the tree will die. And that is just, a, you know, a, it's like a loop on the circle. And then you ask the, about the bee colonies that have to pollinate these almond trees ever increasing. It's kind of crazy in a way, isn't it? Just because we want yeah. almond milk. <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty crazy, and you know. And I think, again, I think that you know, one tipping point that we you know maybe just touched on is I think we're hitting economic tipping points here, and we're hitting them a lot sooner. Yeah. You know, so the sort of water shortages that we're seeing, um, you know, are, are things that uh, I think a lot of climate scientists were more worried about as like a twenty thirty thing or maybe a twenty fifty thing, not a twenty twenty one thing. And it just it's coming faster than we thought. We've got um, f- yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's better that we're feeling the pain now yeah. because it, it, that'll force us into action before it's too late. Let's. Um, we've got a few minutes left here, Christopher. Let's talk about what's happening in my home country a little bit later this year in Glasgow. Apparently, there's a big climate conference happening there. And it seems that everyone they talk about is like, oh, this is the most important one we've ever had. So we're going to hear that again. But why do you think this is a particularly crucial uh, event happening this year? Well, so like a big thing that I talk about in like chapter after chapter of this book is that when you look at the data, things have gotten very, very bad in the last 10 years, you know, or 15 years. So like the, the transition from like 2010 to 2021, right? many of these hazard categories have just gotten way more hazardous. And so you can think about that being the impact of like, you know, half a degree of warming, right, is making a big difference. And so, you know, we really have to get our, our, our act together and, you know, do everything that we can to reduce emissions and increase carbon sequestration from natural environments, you know, to keep us as close as we can to one and a half degree of warming. You know, so if we have this visceral, you know, feeling like things have really gotten a lot worse in the last 10 years, they have, and they're going to keep getting a lot worse. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's like no time <laughs> to, to be lost in, you know, racing towards a transition. And that's the, and I guess it becomes a political dilemma. I mean, I, I have heard from our Utah congressman who's, you know, He's actually one of, you know, because it's Utah, you can imagine what party he might be, but um, he is one of the advocates for um, climate things, which is remarkable. He feels that he has to talk to his group of um, political sides and convince them that the scientists aren't wrong, that humans have had an impact on the earth. And his, what he'd like to see is that America de- develops the technologies to solve the problems. And being America, we sell those products to the rest of the world who needs them. And, you know, it's, it's, a win-win, it's a win situation for Earth, and it's a win-win situation for America, and America likes winning, so that would be a win-win for me, too, in a way. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, I mean, uh, we have so many, the same thing that's causing the climate, the climate crisis, right? All this, like, massive technology and production you know, that also gives us a capacity to come up with solutions and answers and change the game. You know, we have incredible wealth, we have incredible ingenuity, we have incredible technology, we just need the will to do it. And I think things can, can turn around 
you know, if we do that. Well, it's interesting, you know, we, we've all experienced this global event together. I mean, the climate, yes, but something else kind of popped up last year called a pandemic. And what really, you know, as we're coming through that, we're not through it yet, but it just showed you how remarkable the human species is that when push comes to shove, boy, we got a vaccine out quick, didn't we? And it wasn't just one country, it was multiple countries, and each one was effective. You know, the Russians, of course, being the best at creating vaccines, hence, the, you know, the Olympics didn't really have a team because of how all their drugs that they're designing over there. So each one did its thing. So if that energy can be put towards the climate change, you know, the climate crisis, emergency as it is really right now, then we can solve it, right? I mean, isn't that what we should take from this, this last year, perhaps, that humanity and our species is pretty good at solving problems when, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> That's right. Exactly, exactly. You know, and, and you know, uh, and that takes coherent action. And, you know, I, I, I like the historian Yuval Harari's, you know, kind of take on this, where he, he talks about how stories are the things that, that help us create coherent activity, right? So a corporation will have a story, right? And that's, you know, what the work that you're doing, you know, why that's so important, Howard, and the, the fact that you're having a conversation with me, you know, because if we can get the story right and have kind of a shared understanding, then then we can really move quickly together. Yeah, and it's just... Uh, an easy challenge, I mean, but it's it's possible, and I think you know it's it's unifying us all. We are just it's really interesting. I mean, I, there's been a lot of discussions about the new ventures into space, etc. Part of me, as a person, is that will never be able to afford anything like that. Is hopeful that those that can, when they see the Earth from that vantage point, it will completely change their thoughts and I, I really believe of that class of people we almost need the richest people on earth to take these trips to see and make realize how precious this earth is and how there's not much else out there you know what i mean once you get i mean we, yeah. we do see our not we do get seen great night skies here except of late and you know we're reminded every night living in moab that wow it's a big universe isn't it but when you yeah. are actually looking back on earth from that vantage point Perhaps that will help our process. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just always hopeful. Luckily, we live in Moab where we are solar. You know, there's a lot of solar going on here and sustainability, which is good. So, to, you know, but it takes yeah. the whole team, <laughs> Team Earth. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it was kind of, well, it was really ironic to me. I mean, so the, the kind of closing image uh, of my book is this picture taken from uh, the, the space station. And, and it just shows you know, this kind of really thin layer of the atmosphere. And you can see how really shallow it is. And, and that's kind of my, my closing, you know, comment is, look, there's just not very much of this. Uh, we needed to protect ourselves. Yeah. And, and Jeff Bezos gets down off the, like, off the rocket. And, you know, the thing that he says, wow, you know, the big impression I took from that is how thin the atmosphere is. <laughs> and it was like almost verbatim, the kind of spin that I took, you know. And so I, I think you're right. You know, we really need to have, you know, the, the atmosphere. You know, if you get in your car and you drive up straight up, you're going to be at the edge of the atmosphere in about 10 minutes. I know. It's just touching distance almost, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, we just, it's, but we look up and it seems big, right? Yeah. And, and we just, you know, that's science's job is to overcome our misconceptions, right? 
Yep. You know, space is curved, not flat. <laughs> you know, the earth exactly. is round. Exactly. Well, thanks for all your um, part of the process and educating us, and you know, helping helping people understand you know what what what's at stake here too, which is it's our futures really, and, and you know, it's not so much you know our futures, me and you, Christopher. It's the next generations. You know, I look at my daughter, and if she has children, it's that you know that's who we have to answer to as a as a society. It's not us because we're you know we're finite. We're not going to live forever, but we have to create a better place for the future generations, right? Isn't that humanity's all biggest hope in a way? <laughs> yeah. Leave it better than you find it. That's kind of Moab's mantra now is like, you know, with we're, we have a lot of visitors here and our biggest issue is like making sure everybody protects our little fragile part of our earth here, which it's working. You know, we're working on that here. And it's, of course, taking that to the global scale with climate is, is a whole nother thing, you know. But thanks for your spending this last hour with us, and I'm glad we got onto the old-fashioned landline, which was fantastic. And hopefully you'll make it to Moab sometime where you can actually be in the studio again and do it live. That, well, that would be a great pleasure. That well, would be a great pleasure. Thank be, you so much. We'd be honored to have you here, and thanks for all your work and all you do, and we appreciate your time with us this afternoon. Thanks, Christopher. Okay, thank you. All right.